All right, yes, turn everything on. Thank you very much. I need that tape to my forehead. We are uh, in Daniel chapter 7, and we have come to the one of the last verses. We left off in verse 28. But for those that are here for the first time or for um, others, just a quick backstory. Um, Daniel, the first six chapters are history. It's the story of what happened with Daniel and the other teenage Jewish boys who were taken captive after the Babylonian Empire took over Israel. And they took the best and brightest of the young people, including Daniel and his three friends, to sort of brainwash them to become pagan Babylonians. Well, it didn't work. Daniel and his friends never compromised. They always stayed true to what they knew God wanted, according to the word. Um, so the first six chapters are about that. We learn in those chapters that Daniel has the ability to uh, interpret dreams and visions for other people, which he does several times. Um, in Daniel 7, from, from then to the rest end of the book, chapter 12, the second half is all prophecy, almost all prophecy, I should say. Um, chapter 7 is a sort of a repeat of chapter 2 when he interprets for Nebuchadnezzar, the, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of this giant statue with a gold head and silver chest and arms, bronze here, uh, iron legs, and then iron and clay feet. And it just looks so majestic. And suddenly, um, a rock cut without stones comes flying into the picture, hits the feet, and the whole statue is blown up basically to bits. This is troubling to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Daniel interprets it and explains that these are kingdoms, um, that is, the head of gold is the Babylonian kingdom, and the rest are um, the Medo-Persian kingdom, and then the Greek kingdom, and then the Roman empire. And then the last one um, is a little unusual, and it is a revived Roman empire. It's the one that hasn't happened yet, a 10-nation coalition. That's never been true of the Roman empire. It's thought that in the end times, that's when that will happen. In Daniel 7, the same thing is repeated, but instead of the, being a glorious golden and silver statue, which looks so great from man's viewpoint, it is we see God's viewpoint of those same governments. Chapter 7 is all about that. And they aren't good. They're all beasts, according to chapter 7 and the vision that God gives to Daniel. So um, let's pick it up in Daniel chapter. I'm on the wrong page. Daniel chapter 7. Um, Let's see, where do we want to start? Basically, they're all beasts, and God uses symbolic language to describe each empire as a beast uh, because they uh, take over certain areas. Again, the empires are the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, Greek, and then the Roman Empire, which comes all the way through the time of Christ and beyond. But God sees them, as I said, as beasts. Um, Look, pick it up in verse 7 of chapter 7. Those of you that are here and those of you on Zoom, say amen so I know you're awake. Good one. I see some of your mouths moving online. That's pretty good. Everybody online, by the way, is muted because with that many people, we have 62 screens, about 100 people. It gets kind of noisy with all the background noise and dogs barking. So that's why everybody's muted. Not that I don't want to hear from you. I just, we can't handle the noise. Verse 7. After that in my vision, um, I looked and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. 
large iron teeth. This is the Roman Empire. Devoured its victims, and they were brutal in that empire. Um, verse 8, he talks about a different uh, horn, a little one. Horns are emblematic of or symbolic of power uh, in the Bible. Um, and so there, uh, uh, the horn comes up, and three of the first horns um, are uprooted before it. It has the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke both boastfully. Um, this is Antichrist. We talked about it last week, and there's a lot of parallelism between this chapter 7 and chapter 13 of the book of Revelation, which is sometimes called the Antichrist or Beast chapter. Uh, Antichrist is a future world leader that will be um, sort of indwelt by Satan and will appear to be very charismatic, a great military leader, a, a great mind, and yet he will take over the whole world and persecute believers. That's what chapter 13 of Revelation is all about. We looked at that last time. Um, let's see. But then there's an interruption in that chapter right around verse 9, and there are thrones, which is God judging. Um, anyway, let's see. I'll go down to verse 11. I'm just doing a quick review here. Um, boastful words the, the horn this is the antichrist ends up saying that he's god basically and demanding worship penalty for not worshiping him is death uh, that's in revelation 13 um let's see and then verse 13 of chapter 7 the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven uh, this is jesus christ different from the ancient of days in this chapter which is god the father um notice that he that, that's the uh, Son of Man is given authority, glory, sovereign power. All peoples worshiped him. His dominions everlasting won't pass away like the other governments. This is Jesus Christ who is given glory. If Jesus Christ is not God, then this is blasphemous. But if he is, and since he is, it makes perfect sense that he would be given glory. Because in the Old Testament, right around Isaiah 45, God says, I will not share my glory with another. Therefore, if he's sharing his glory, guess who the other is, right? By inference, it's God. Um, let's see. So Daniel's troubled, and he wants an explanation of these things. And in verse 17, an angel tells him, some people think it's Christ himself, but an angel probably, the four beasts, verse 17, are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High, that's believers. New Testament, every time the word saints occurs, it's believers. Um, the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom, that's you and me, and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. But he really wants to know, verse 19, about that other beast. Uh, different from the others, the, the Roman Empire, especially, verse 10, those 10 horns, it's thought it's a 10-nation confederacy, still future, that will happen during the Great Tribulation, a seven-year period. Half of that period isn't so bad, but second half, all hell breaks loose, and the Antichrist starts really persecuting Christians and backs out of a deal he had with the Jews to let them worship and sacrifice. I won't go into all that again, but that's on the tape from last week, the recording, I should say. Um, let's see. Yeah, the ten horns. Okay, um, verse 21, as I watched this horn, Antichrist, was waging war against the saints and defeating them until there's judgment from God in favor of us. 
and that's when they come to possess the kingdom. That's the second coming of Jesus, same as the rock cut without stones. Jesus is called a rock, a stone in several places. Hits that statue in chapter two. You can read that later. His second coming is after all these world kingdoms. We've already seen Babylon, um, Medo-Persia, Greece, and the Roman Empire happen, but there hasn't been a revived Roman Empire with a coalition of 10 nations yet, nor has there been a one world government with one man ruling the whole world, Antichrist. That's why most scholars think this is still future. Um, okay, now that I've put everyone to sleep, let's keep rolling, um, or most everyone. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, verse 23, he starts to explain about the fourth beast and the, and verse 24, the 10 horns are 10 Kings from that kingdom. Another of them will arise. He'll speak against verse 25, the most high that's God and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times and half a time. We said that's three and a half years, um, 42 months. It's said in several different ways to make sure we don't miss it. Thank God that's all his time is. Now, if you're suffering for three and a half years, it's the longest three and a half years of your life. Amen. But it sure beats if it was a hundred year kingdom or a 10 year kingdom or whatever. Uh, but he wants us to know there is a limit to that time. Um, let's see. Um, but the court will sit, verse 26, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. That's when Christ returns. Then the sovereignty, verse 27, power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to who? I'm expecting the Son of Man, Christ. What does it say? To who? The holy people of the Most High. That's you and me. We reign with Christ. How? I don't know, but we do. Um, and we certainly don't deserve it right? He does, we don't. Um, his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, so no one's going to overthrow Christ's kingdom when he arrives. Most scholars believe that the second coming inst institutes the end of that Antichrist kingdom, number one, a judgment, number two, and number three, the beginning of a thousand-year reign when Christ reigns on the earth and we reign with him. What happens at the end of the thousand years? Well, you have to read Revelation 20, 21, and 22 for that, but basically there's a little bit of a rebellion. Satan, who's been bound for those thousand years, is released. He, he gets a coalition of people that go with him, and they try to overthrow Jesus Christ, and they lose, and they lose quickly, okay? Um, Antichrist, by the way, is destroyed at his Waterloo, which is the Battle of Armageddon, which is no battle at all. Christ returns, takes them prisoner, and that's the end of that. Wonderful thing. Um, so the translation for you and me, or the so what for you and me, is that your future, according to this, is absolutely glorious. Whether you die before this occurs, or even if you live through it and you suffer through it, um, or even if you're killed by the Antichrist, your future as a believer is totally glorious. Praise God. Um, look at verse 28. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. This is so troubling to him, these beasts. He's seen uh, man's view of these kingdoms and it was a head of gold and a beautiful statue. Now he sees, boy, it's going to get worse before it gets better. He's very troubled probably because the people of God are being persecuted and killed, right? So 
Um, that's the end of chapter seven. Let's close with prayer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> chapter eight. You go, well, look, can't we move on? Yes. Okay, chapter eight. There's a lot going on in chapter eight. Some consider this the hardest chapter to um, teach on or exegete, take the meaning from, of any chapter in Daniel. Um, I don't think it's impossible, though, because there's enough clues in the rest of the Bible and in Daniel to figure out what's going on here. It turns out, in a way, this is a restatement of what we just went through with some differences, with some more specifics uh, that we haven't had them uh, to this point. Um, let's see. Okay. Um, another interesting thing before we dive into eight, <clears throat> chapters one through seven are in the language of Aramaic. Surprising, because the Old Testament's all Hebrew, except for the first six, uh, seven chapters. Aramaic, the language of the Gentiles at that time. By the way, speaking of time, Daniel 1 is around 605 before Christ, 650 year, uh, 605 years before Jesus, just to give you a time marker. Um, uh, so it, starting in chapter 8, we go back to the we go to the Hebrew language because it's more about the Jews, uh, like the rest of the Old Testament is. Um, this is a sweeping view of history from Daniel's time all the way through to the second coming of Jesus Christ, which we don't know when that is, but already we're talking 2,600 years, right? Give or take. Um, yeah, we've already seen um, some of the leaders. We're going to get specific on some of the leaders and the governments in this chapter. Um, Daniel, at the end of chapter eight, he is exhausted, like he ran a marathon. He is sick for days after this because getting all this revelation is very heavy because of the nature of what he's told. Let's dive in. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Beautiful. Chapter eight, verse one. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me, it means after the one of chapter seven we just talked about, right? Okay, so this is, if you've seen movies where they do this, a flashback, okay? Because Belshazzar died in chapter five, okay? We're in chapter eight now. He's saying, yes, I told you that history, but let me tell you, this when I had this vision, it was back then around chapter five, um, which is about 551 B.C., uh, let's see. <clears throat> so verse two, um, in my vision. So this is a new vision, not a dream. Sometimes he has dreams, visions. So it's probably during the day in my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, uh, or Shushan. Some, uh, translations have in the province of Elam in the vision. I was beside the Ulai canal. Okay. So Susa, at the time he's having this vision, by the way, at the time he's giving, getting all this prophecy, none of these things have taken place. It's all future, okay? And some of it is surprising. Susa, or Shushan, the city, is a just a nothing town at this time when he's writing. It will become the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire, Lucky guess from Daniel, or did God know it in advance? Of course, you know the answer to that. So scholars disagree on this. It says, in my vision, I saw myself, or I found myself in the citadel or the palace in Susa. 
Okay, there is no palace in Susa at this time. So the question is, does he literally go there physically or just see himself there in the vision? Doesn't make a lot of difference, but I'll tell you, most scholars think he just saw himself there and wasn't really transported there. But it was real to him. He could see everything around him, sort of uh, uh, like a video game. If you're one of those little things you wear and get the 3D effect, he's getting a vision from God. So he's in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam, and he's by the Ulai Canal. This is a man-made canal that, that Alexander the Great sailed his fleet down. Um, years later, Alexander the Great isn't even born when he, Daniel's having this vision, by the way. Okay, so uh, one commentator wrote, God transported him in time and in space to see the future, right? John the Baptist, uh, not John the Baptist, sorry, John the Apostle, the book of Revelation is the same thing. He gets to see the future, right? Um, okay, so he's in Susa, which is about 150 miles north of the head of the Persian Gulf. Um, it's going to become the Persian capital, but it's a nothing town at this time. We already said that. Susa is in modern Iran. Okay. Babylon, we said before, is in modern Iraq. Okay. Very near ba uh, uh, Baghdad, where Saddam Hussein was. Remember all that? Um, okay. So modern Iraq, more modern Iran. Um, let's see, 80 years after Daniel has this vision, a woman from the Old Testament named Esther um, lives in Susa, same city. Um, let's see, we already talked about, oh, and 100 years later, this is the same city where Nehemiah de departs to go back to Israel to rebuild the temple and all that. Okay, verse three, now we're going to get into the psychedelic weird imagery again, more beasts. Here we go. But it's not as hard as it looks to understand. Verse 3, I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal. And the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. You say, well, that's not unusual. Rams have two horns normally. Yes. Okay. This is the Medo Persian Empire. He's going to explain all this in, in right around verse 19 or 20 of this chapter, but I'm going to give you a sneak preview, okay, for no extra charge, by the way. Um, the ram has two horns, okay, but notice that one of the horns is bigger, grows longer, and it, but it grew up later. This is the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medes were the dominant one at first. Persians was the smaller kingdom. Iran, but they grew very quickly and took over and it became what's called the Persian Empire. Really, we call it Medo-Persian. So that's the um, Persians are the second horn uh, growing up longer later. And, and they start later. I watched verse four, the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it and no, none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. Interestingly, if you look on a map, what the Persian Empire, where it started and where it went, God's exactly right. It went west, north, and south. Didn't go east. And it conquered very quickly um, 
And it was very, very powerful, just as this says. So that's the Medo-Persian Empire, which is after the Babylonian Empire. As I was thinking about this, verse 5, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. Okay, We're told later in this chapter, the goat is the Greek Empire. Okay, And specifically, we're going to learn this is all about Alexander the Great who named himself that, by the way. Um, okay, so this is weird because goats don't usually have one horn. They have two. Because really, the whole Greek empire, there's really only one leader, and that's Alexander the Great. You'll see where this kingdom is divided into four, which are his four generals, which happens later. We'll get to that. So here, there's the ram that nobody can defeat, which is um, Medo-Persia. And suddenly... Here comes a goat. Some translations have a he-goat or a male goat. And it's got a prominent horn between its eyes, almost like a, um, a unicorn, right? Except unicorn is supposed to be like a horse with it. Don't get me started. Okay. It came from the West, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. What's that? No one has ever conquered militarily a larger area than Alexander the Great in such a short time. He takes over for his father when he's 21 years old. He's a military genius. And by the time he's 32, about 12 years, 33, he's conquered that whole part of the world. And that's why it says without even touching the ground so fast, how fast Alexander the Great takes over um, without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen. It's got a battle Medo-Persia now standing beside the canal, and charged at it in great rage. By the way, the, the Greeks hated the Medo-Persians. There was a major racial thing going on. They hated them, and they took great vengeance on them when they took over the Medo-Persian empire. Verse 7, I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it, the goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. All of these kingdoms, parenthetically, we've been saying for weeks, I don't want you to forget this. All of these kingdoms, to a casual observer, it looks like, oh, that kingdom rose up, and then these guys took them over. The point of all this is not just that God knows in advance there's going to be that kingdom, Babylon, and then these people are going to come it's that God in this book, he's saying over and over, is the one raising up certain rulers and then taking them down. It's God doing it. You're saying these people are godly? No, they're not. None of them are, but he can use, he used the Romans to destroy Jerusalem as a punishment, you remember, for re refusing their Messiah, the Jews refusing their Messiah. So God not only knows about this, he's causing all of this stuff. Um, we already talked about that. I'm just looking at uh, one commentator wrote, this is the goat that wasn't kidding. Sorry. I know that's bad. Sorry. I'm trying to keep you awake here. Um, okay. So we got the goat with one horn. This is Alexander the Great. Um, 
If you skip down to verse 21, that's explained. The rough goat is the king of Greece. The great horn between his eyes is the first king. So it's Alexander the Great. By the way, I said he conquered the whole world by the time he was 33, 32, right in there. He dies at that age in a drunken stupor at an orgy. Alcohol, by the way, just parenthetically, is involved in the death of each of the leaders of these first three kingdoms. Kind of interesting. Um, so the bar will be closed now from now on. No more bar at the Bible study. Okay, just kidding. Um, verse 8, is that where we left off? I'm losing track here. Yes, the goat became very great. But at the height of its power, remember, 32, 33 years old. At the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. Alexander the Great dies suddenly. He has no heir to take the throne. That's usually what happened in those days. So for 20 years, there's no leader in the Greek empire. But there are four generals, actually five, and then one kind of goes away. There's four generals battling for power. They end up forming a little coalition and they decide we can't rule together. You take the north, you take the south, you take the east, and I'll take the west. So the four generals of Alexander the Great are the four, uh, look at the rest of verse eight. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Four winds, winds we said were judgment. And this is God, meaning, uh, heaven, meaning God's the one putting these people in power. Okay, so we're almost up to date. The Alexander's empire at, at its peak, when he's about 32, 33, covered one and a half million square uh, miles, just huge, uh, his kingdom. Uh, we already talked about that and that. The four generals, Lysimachus, Cassander, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. I'm probably mispronouncing all of those, but they will be on the test, so you might want to write them down. Just kidding. Okay, um, so just like God said, this is exactly how it went down, and it Daniel's recording it in advance. Um, let's see. Um, okay, so verse 9. Out of one of them, out of one of what? One of the four prominent horns. We're still in the Greek empire. And uh, out of one of them comes another horn, another leader, another powerful figure, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. That's a way of saying Israel in the Old Testament, the beautiful, or some translations have the glorious land. It's called that uh, in other books of the Old Testament. So there's another leader that's going to come out of one of those Greek sub uh, kingdoms and start small. It grew. This is uh, another leader. We'll get to who it is in a second until it reached the host of the heavens just supernaturally, freakishly big. Um, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. Okay, now this is one of the verses where the more commentaries you read, the more opinions you find. Okay, it's one of those. So I, because I'm not positive, I like to tell you it could mean this and it might mean this. I've taught Revelation twice and you, you say, if you're teaching Revelation and you're honest, you say that over and over and over again. Some people think it's this. Some people think it's that. And then, you know, 
you got to do more research, each of you, and, and so do I. Um, yeah, we talked about that. Um, so um, this is uh, a, a very bad leader named uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? This is a guy who um, is a real historic figure. He, I'm going to tell you what he did, which is right out of what Daniel says he's going to do. And it's going to sound like, or very similar to, the Antichrist in Revelation 13. Okay? Very often in the Bible, there are prophecies that have a near in fulfillment time, and then a distant in the future fulfillment. Another thing that happens is the thing called types, T-Y-P-E-S, um, or it's symbolism. In other words, a lot of things in the Old Testament are types of or sort of blurry pictures of things in the New Testament. The lamb must be sacrificed for sins. The lamb in, in Judaism must be without blemish, a perfect lamb, and it must be sacrificed um, on the Friday, right? The be before the beginning of Passover, right? You say, yeah, we know all that. That's Judaism. No, look, that's a type of Jesus Christ, who is the lamb without blemish, who is sacrificed at the exact time he dies on the Friday when the in the temple, the priests are slitting throats of lambs. He's the lamb without blemish. That's an example. There's all kinds of types. Antiochus Epiphanes is a type of or symbol of the coming Antichrist. What he does on a medium scale, Antichrist is going to do in the future on a global scale. I'm telling you too much. Let's look at it first and then we'll discuss it more. That's the another horn. It's going to sound like the Antichrist and it's similar, but it's not the Antichrist because it's in the Greek empire. Antichrist is in the Roman revived empire. Uh, let's see. It threw some of the starry host down to the earth. Do you see that? Okay. So Starry hosts sometimes in the Bible are believers. Sometimes the stars are emblematic of angels. Well, which is it? Okay. Is it the, the Jews? It's probably the Jewish people, the believers. Okay. Symbolism. And uh, down to the earth and tramples on them. Some say that it's the angels that were there to protect Israel are thrown down and they can't protect Israel and they're trampled on. Verse 11, it, this, that's this small horn of the Greek empire, it set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. Okay, it took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary, God's sanctuary, the temple, was thrown down. Okay, so it sets itself up as being God himself. Okay, Antiochus Epiphanes. This is a blasphemous guy who ends up saying that he's God and demanding that he be worshipped in the Greek um, empire. Um, we already talked about that. So this guy hates the Jews so much that he comes into the temple in Jerusalem on a Sabbath. Okay, you know anything about Judaism? There's clean and unclean foods, foods, right? Kosher. The unclean food of unclean foods is pork, pigs, right? Antiochus Epiphanes knows this. Um, and so he brings a live 
pig into the temple of God, sacrifices it on the altar, sprinkles pig blood all over the whole temple, desecrating it, an abomination that causes desolation. You say, wait, that sounds like what the Antichrist is going to do when he's the abomination himself demanding worship in the Jewish temple. You're right. Okay. One is a picture of the other, um, sort of a preview, if you will. Okay. So um, let me look at notes here. So uh, the children of Israel are called uh, stars, they're going to be as numerous as the stars of the heavens in Genesis 15. So that is what could be meant. Um, so he offers that pig as a sacrifice. And um, let's see, four years later, oddly enough, on December 25th, 164 BC, a guy named Judas Maccabeus, a Jewish nationalist, he leads the Jews in rededicating, cleaning it all up and rededicating the temple to Yahweh, to God, the Old Testament God, again. What that is, what he did, is what the Jews celebrate as Hanukkah. You ever heard of Hanukkah? Right around Christmas and all that. They're celebrating that they got their temple back cleansed because they knew it had been desecrated with the pig blood and all that stuff. Um, okay. I'm reading notes and the text and trying to stay awake here. Um, we, already we already talked about that. Um, so Antichrist, we already talked about that, is going to, Revelation 13, 7 to 10, we read it last week, we won't go there now, but he goes into the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. He will punish you if you don't worship him by killing you if you're alive at that time, whether you're a Jew or a Christian. Um, but if you read Revelation 13 with us last week, you saw that he's empowered by Satan. And there's many people that think this is the guy, Antichrist. And they are willing to worship him and bow to him. We talked about the mark on the hand or the forehead last time as well. We won't go over that again. Um, verse 11. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord, meaning uh, he's as great as God. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord. In the temple of God, there were daily sacrifice to Yahweh. By sacrificing a pig and desecrating the temple, no more sacrifice to God. Do you see what I mean? It appears to be a victory for the evil one, Antiochus Epiphanes, right? Is it? No. It is the judgment of God. He's allowing this right? God's never in heaven watching human history going, oh no, look at that. I didn't expect that. He's allowing this guy to take over because the Jews have disobeyed God and been idolaters and been going through the motions of religion, but haven't really believed what they've been doing and saying. So uh, let's see. Yeah. So Epiphanes, by the way, Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanies means divine manifestation. You're looking at me, you're looking at God kind of thing. Total blasphemy. The Jews, as a joke, changed his name behind his back to Antiochus Epimenes, which means madman, crazy guy, right? Um, so he calls himself equal with God and is worshiped. Um, we already Oh, he sets up an idol... Uh, 
uh, to the god Zeus in the temple of, uh, I forgot to mention, uh, of in Israel, of the Jews. Um, verse 12, because of rebels or rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Okay, what's going on here? This is one of those verses, 12. Are the rebels and the rebellion, Antiochus and the Greeks doing this? Or is it, most scholars think, the second thing, it's the Jews. It's a judgment. It's the rebellion of the Jews against God. That's why they're getting what they're deserving here with a temple that's been desecrated. The Lord's people, that's the Jews at that time, and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. No more sacrifice to God. It prospered, Antiochus Epiphanes, and everything that it did, that empire, and truth was thrown to the ground. Get this. When he does this thing with the pig and the altar to Zeus and I'm God and worship me in the temple... He finds out that they have scrolls of the Old Testament there, and he burns them. Truth thrown down. Um, verse 13. Um, oh, uh, if you have a Catholic Bible, or you, I used to go to Catholic church, the Catholics have a, a part of their Bible is called the Apocrypha. Ever heard of that? Okay. It is intertestamental books. You go, what's that? The Jewish scriptures stop 400 BC, okay? And God is quiet for 400 years. He's so had it with the Jews, they're being judged. But there are books that were written during that time by Jews. Do the Jews consider them to be scripture? No. Are they historic and valuable to read for some things? Yes. Whoops. Yes. But they're not scripture. Catholics include them at the back. In the Apocrypha, um, there are two books called First and Second Maccabees. Don't look in your Bible. You probably don't have those, do you? Right? Um, so between 400 BC and the New Testament period. Um, so in one of those, First uh, Maccabees chapter 1, listen to this talking about the very thing we're talking about, Antiochus Epiphanes in the Jewish temple, what a horrible thing goes on. They tore in pieces the books of the law when they found them and burned them with fire. Um, and listen to this, where any was found with a book of the covenant, in other words, if they came to Jeff and Darlene's house and found, oh, you have a scroll of Isaiah that you've been hiding. If any was found uh, with a book of the covenant or any found pleasure in the law, the king's commandment was that they should be put to death. So they would go house to house and search. And if you guys have a copy of the scriptures, you better put it under the fridge and, you know, in that little hole in the floor, right? Uh, could that happen in our society? Have they taken the Bible out of school? Totally, right? It's a matter of time, in my opinion, before we see, I don't mean in a year, six months, I don't know, it could be 100 years, 20 years, but we're certainly not moving toward God as a society, are we? Governmentally, at least. Um, okay, how are we doing on time? Almost ready for our two-minute break. I bet some of you can hardly wait. Um, okay, you might ask the question, we sort of already answered it, but how could God, I'm sure the Jews asked, 
how could God allow this dude to sacrifice a pig? Why didn't he kill him of a heart attack when he walked in the door? The answer is God not only allowed it, he let it happen. He caused it in a sense as a punishment for the Jews. So God's not out of control when the world seems out of control. He's totally in control. It's because of his uh, of Israel's transgression. First Maccabees even says that, chapter 1, verse 44 to 49. Verse, 40, uh, verse 13, we're back to Daniel 8. Then I heard a holy one speaking, almost certainly an angel. There's a few commentators who think it's Jesus himself. Which is it? I don't know. Probably an angel. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, this is a good question, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled. What vision? This whole Greek thing with Antiochus Epiphanes and this crazy amount of power he's got and how evil he is. How long do we have to put up with this? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation or the abomination, the surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, it will take, and, and I'm going to give you what it literally reads in the Hebrew, because in your translation, I bet it has 2,300 evenings and mornings. Do you have the word and? In the Hebrew, it's 2,300 evenings, mornings. Okay. Um, just like in Genesis, where he's talking about the days at the creation. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And there was evening and morning the second day. Remember that? So 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be uh Reconsecrated, right? Made holy again. That's what Hanukkah is all about. We talked about that earlier. Um, so you wouldn't think there would be controversy here because it sounds to me like 2,300 days, a little under seven years. Uh, it's six years. I have it somewhere. Uh, six years, four months, 20 days. That's almost all scholars think that's what it is. Some think it's half of that, 1150 days, which would be three years, two months, 10 days. Um, but the 2300 days works out perfectly um, when Antioch, uh, uh, Antioch, Antioch, Antiochus, sorry, Epiphanes did his worst with the temple, uh, a little over, uh, almost seven years, six years and some change. Um, some scholars think that's a round number, but the rest of the numbers in Daniel aren't round numbers. They're pretty exact. So I don't think it's a round uh, number. So um, let's see, December 6, 165 before Christ BC uh, is when they got their uh, temple back. Um, so the same time period for Antichrist is good news shorter, three and a half years, right? All hell breaks loose on earth in those three and a half years. If we're alive at that time, it's not going to be easy if we live through it. Um, let's see. Let's take our two-minute break at this point just to stretch our aging bodies. Some of us are aging faster than others, and I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. Welcome back. We are Still in Daniel chapter 8, with all kinds of beasts and horns here. Find your seats, those of you that are here. Um, making sure my screen is on. Yay, and the microphone too. What do you know? Okay. Um, let's see. 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be 
reconsecrated. That's exactly the amount of time that this guy um, was doing his worst to the Jews. Verse 15, while I, Daniel, we're in chapter 8, verse 15, while I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it. Remember, this is a guy that interpreted visions for all these other leaders. And he's, his mind is blown away with this stuff. Trying to understand it, there stood before me one who looked like a man. Okay? That tells you this is an angel. Okay, because if it looked, if it, why bother to say it looked like a man if it was a man, right? It's kind of a duh. Jeff came over to my house and he looked like a man. That's because he is a man, right? Angels, listen, are non-corporeal. Okay, it's a fancy word. Do you know what it means? In their true form, angels are spiritual beings. Translation, they don't really have extension in space and time like you and I do, bodies, okay? They can travel vast distances quickly. They fly. We know that from other scriptures. Okay. But when they appear to human beings, they take on the form of human flesh with a mouth and they speak to a human kind of thing. You're going to see in a second that Daniel is so blown away by this guy's appearance, bright and beautiful, that he falls to the ground like in a coma, just like John, if you read chapter one of Revelation, sees an angel and, and it happens at the end of the book and almost wants to worship, right? Okay, one that looked like a man. This is an angel. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. I should have done it in a British accent, right? That's what they always do in those movies. Um, but I won't. Okay, so now we know what's the angel's name? Gabriel. There are only two angels in the whole Bible that we know their names. One is Gabriel, the other one is Michael. Okay. Um, <clears throat> let's see. So this is the angel, Gabriel, coming to give him a little bit of a understanding, some clues anyway. Gabriel. El means God. Gabriel means, or Gabriel means God has shown himself strong or strong man of God or man of God. Um, let's see. Gabriel is the same angel, you may remember, that talks with Mary. You remember? Michael is mentioned in Jude 9, as only one chapter, uh, battling with uh, Satan. We won't go there now because that would be a, a rabbit trail. But in any case, this is the angel Gabriel, almost certainly an archangel. There's a hierarchy of angels. This is like a five-star general angel, if you will, an admiral. Okay, if you were in the Navy, uh, go with me on this. Okay, verse, let's see. So he's been assigned one angel telling the other angel, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. There's scholars that think that the first voice is Christ because he's ordering an angel. Go tell him. Could it be? I don't know. Verse 17. As he came near the place where I was standing, I gave him a high five and we had a hot dog. Right? You ever hear these guys on TV, the evangelist people going, I had this vision. I went to heaven and, and I told God, you need to come on. Every time you see somebody encounter an angel, let alone God, Isaiah goes into the throne room of God. And what does he say? I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean, unclean lips. He's like torn in half. 
right? He feels like he is anyway. Um, I was terrified at verse 17 as he came near the place and I fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. Okay, this is another one of those verses where depending on what commentator you read, does that mean the end, like second coming, tribulation, all that? Or does it mean the end of this guy's um, reign, Antiochus Epiphanes? Okay, and the short answer is the commentators I respect the most said the answer is both. It's one of those with a near in time fulfillment and a future because the Antichrist is going to do very similar things to this guy, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, the vision concerns the time of the end. Verse 18. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet, just like John, overcome with the brilliance, the holiness, the awesome power of this angel, right? Almost like in a call, he faints, basically, he can't handle it. Um, so, but the angel touches him and says, get up, we got more work to do. I got to tell you some other things, right? Um, he touched me and raised me to my feet. Verse 19. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. Okay. The two-horned ram that you saw, now he's going to translate, right? Aren't you glad this is here? Now you can see, was Joe right about these things? Probably not. The two-horned ram you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. Okay, pretty straightforward. Remember the ram earlier in this chapter? The shaggy goat, it wasn't called that before, by the way, at least not in uh, NIV, is the king of Greece, the kingdom that succeeds it, that comes next. And the large horn between its eyes is the first king. We already said that was, you got to look up in Greek history, who was the first and main leader of the Greek empire? Alexander the Great. That's how we know that name. Um, so the large horn is a person. It's a king. Um, these beasts and horns sometimes in the, in the Bible are used interchangeably of, listen, kingdoms and kings, leaders. Okay. Verse 22, the four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent, remember the four generals after Alexander the Great dies? The four horns that were broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation. It's exactly what happened. What a lucky guess for Daniel, right? By the way, there aren't many times in human history where there's one kingdom and the leader dies and it ends up branching off into four kingdoms. How did God get this right? Lucky guess, wrong. He's making it happen, right? The, the four kingdoms will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. Those four kingdoms were never as powerful as Alexander was because divided. They all each got four regions, north, south, east, and west. Verse 23, in the latter part of their reign, that's the four kings, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, king of fierce countenance, if you will, King James. This is Antiochus Epiphanes, a master of intrigue will arise. This guy is tricky. He's slimy. He's a 
typical, you know, really good salesman that can talk the good line and he fools people. He, verse 24, will become very strong. He's explaining the Antiochus Epiphanes thing we mentioned, because in history, that's the only guy it could be. Um, the name is not given. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. Now, there's a sense in which I said God allows it. So you might think, oh, that means God gives him his power. Okay. But based on the evil that he does, although that may be true, Satan is behind Antiochus Epiphanes in the same way that is behind that he's behind the Antichrist. The Antichrist is Satan indwelling a human being. Okay. With all the power Satan has as a powerful angel. This guy really rises to power, and it's not even his own power. He doesn't even maybe know it. He's controlled by Satan. Verse 24 continues, he will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. You say, how could God let that happen? I already told you they had rebelled against God. They weren't living, obeying him. They had pagan gods. They're being judged. But aren't they the apples of his eye? Yes. And for that reason, don't you discipline your kids or your grandkids if they do something wrong? It's a loving thing to do. God disciplines his children. That's in the New Testament, by the way. We're not exempt uh, either. Um, that's the holy people. So it's the Jews. But if you make it um, the distant fulfillment, it's Antichrist. And then the holy people would be believing Christians, right? Or Jews that have converted to Christianity. Verse 25. This is interesting. Another reason why we know he's empowered by Satan. In New Testament, we find out Satan is the father of lies, right? Verse 25. He will cause deceit to prosper. And he will consider himself superior. Not only does he cause deceit to prosper by asking, demanding worship, but also whenever you destroy the word of God, which he does, burns it, right? Tears them up and burns them. You're causing deceit to prosper and consider himself superior. This is a guy with a huge ego. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against, this is interesting, the prince of princes, yet he will be destroyed but not by human power. Okay, what's going on there? When they feel secure, Antiochus Epiphanes takes power, and he's, for a while, he lets the Jews have their temple, do their sacrifices, go ahead, worship your little God, your little Jewish God. But then eventually, they feel secure, like, yeah, he's evil, but we're good here in the temple. We can worship our Lord and pray to him. Eventually, they feel secure, and he breaks his deal with them, basically. Antichrist does the exact same thing. Read Revelation 13. We covered it last week. He makes a covenant with the Jews for seven years, but in the middle, three and a half years, he changes his mind and comes into the temple and goes, no more Yahweh, no more God the Father. It's me. I'm God, Antichrist. Um, so he'll destroy many when they feel secure, he kills all kinds of Jews and take his stand against the prince of princes. Isn't that interesting? Who's that, you say? Well, it's another one of those. This is why chapter 8 is hard to, to uh, 
get the exact meaning of. A lot of commentators think it's Christ. But in the Old Testament fulfillment of this prophecy, Christ is just a distant figure, Jews believe, is coming, the Messiah, right? New Testament, when the Antichrist comes, he's definitely against Jesus Christ, the Prince of Princes. So you might take it as both God the Father and Jesus Christ. He's against God, period. And he takes his stand boldly and arrogantly, blasphemously, against this Prince of Princes. Yet he, that's the uh, Antiochus Epiphanes guy, and Antichrist, this is true of, he will be destroyed, but not by human power. What does that mean? It means there may be guys planning to assassinate Antiochus Epiphanes. There may be guys in the future in the tribulation going, we're going to get together. We got guns. We got a bunch of uh, Marines with us. We're going to kill Antichrist. Not biblically, you're not. You might try but you're not biblically because he's destroyed, but not by human power. Well, what power is it? Remember the statue, the stone cut without hands. Christ defeats the Antichrist when he shows up. Chapter 19 of and 20 of Revelation. Um, so he's going to be destroyed, but not by human power. It's God that destroys him. By the way, just a little asterisk here. Okay. Last week we mentioned, um, turn quickly in your Bible. We haven't gone there yet. Go to Revelation 13. Keep your finger in Daniel 8. Go to Revelation 13, if you will. Easy book to find. It's at the back, as they say, right? Right before the book of concordance, we used to say. Okay. Um, this is all Antichrist chapter 13, a beast coming up out of the sea. We looked at this last week. I don't want to go over the whole thing. Um, but there were men, verse 4, worshiping the devil, the dragon, because he gave authority to the beast. They also worship the Antichrist, the beast, who can make war against him. Proud words, verse 5, blasphemy. Authority for 42 months. That's three and a half years. Uh, blasphemes God, verse 6, slanders his name and his dwelling place, which is the temple and heaven, and those who live in heaven, those that have died. Given power to make war, verse 7, against the saints and to conquer them given authority over how much of the world all of it every tribe people language nation no other way to say it right uh, all inhabitants of the earth listen to this will worship the beast all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb um, and then there's verses about if you're destined to go into captivity or be killed even though you're a believer we're not guaranteed protection it might happen right? This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the, verse 10, saints, Christians. New Testament, saints means Christians, holy ones, set apart ones. Um, another beast, we're going to skip all that. Um, um, let's see. Verse 14, because of the signs he was given to do, he's going to be able to do miracles, amazing signs and wonders, lying signs and wonders, Paul calls it in 2 Thessalonians. Because of the signs, verse 14, he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast. He deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Um, that's what I was looking for, that, but look at verse 3 of the same chapter. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a, what? Fatal wound. We talked about that last week. That's not a flesh wound. 
right? Oh, just got shot in the arm. It, it'll heal. A fatal wound kills you. Many scholars believe this is a fake resurrection. Antichrist means against Christ, but it also means pseudo or instead of a fake Christ, if you will. What a great thing to have a fake resurrection and say, you've heard of Christ, I'm him. Look, I rose from the dead again. So this guy um, is, a, somebody does attempt to kill him and he comes back from the dead. Literally, or is it a fake resurrection? Hard to say. But the world sees all these signs and goes, what more do we evidence do we need? This is our guy. Um, let's see. Then there's the mark on the hand of the forehead right around verse 17. You can't buy or sell anything unless you have a vaccine passport. No, that's not what it says. I just threw that in. Okay. And then the number 666. We're not here to discuss that now. Thank God. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 8, shall we? Go back to Daniel 8. I just wanted you to take a quick look at that before we move on. Okay. Still awake out there? Say amen. Good one. Um, good. I see some waving. Good on, on, on uh, Zoom. Um, okay. Uh, let's see. Where did we leave? Uh, deceit will prosper. When they feel secure, he's going to destroy them. He'll be destroyed, but not by human power. Verse 26. The vision of the evenings and the mornings has been given. That has been given you is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. It's almost like he's giving him the close view of history, what's going to happen fairly soon. And it's almost like a play that the characters are acting out what's going to happen in the distant future with Antichrist, hence the distant future thing. Um, seal it up. Doesn't mean keep it a secret. One translation has that. It's really not good Hebrew. Okay. Seal it up means seal it up. When if if um, Ross and I were doing a legal document in those days, we would write up the document. We'd both review it and go, yeah, is this right? Yes. Okay. We would both sign it and then it would be sealed with wax. Sometimes every page. Meaning what? Meaning Ross can't add to it later. Joe can't add to it later. It's sealed, meaning don't add to this. Don't, it's almost the same as Revelation 22. The end of the book of Revelation, the end of the whole Bible says, there's a warning. Do you remember? Don't add to this book. Don't subtract. Some people think it means the book of Revelation. I got news for you. I think it means the whole Bible. Don't add to this. And also, it's not a smorgasbord. I like the peas and the chicken. I don't like the don't pick and choose. Part of the reason we do in this Bible study what's called expositional Bible teaching, meaning you pick a book of the Bible, Daniel, you start at verse one of chapter one and you go to the end. Part of the reason is if you do that, guess what? You can't skip anything, right? That's why we do it. Okay. Verse 27. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. One translation has sick. Uh, then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. The dude that can understand visions and prophecy more than anybody in the whole Old Testament goes, wow, blew my mind. I don't know what it means. So don't be disappointed if you or I go, I'm just not sure about everything, right? Prophecy is not meant to give you 
play-by-play of an entire game, if you will. It's just an overview. So that one of the reasons is you'll know God knows the future, right? God causes the future, but you'll also know when things start to happen. Oh, wait a minute. There's this new world government and it's governing the same area that was the Roman Empire. And there's a 10-nation confederacy. Hmm. And there's this one dude that seems to become more and more prominent. And he's claiming to be the smartest guy that ever lived. And, oh, now he's claiming to be God. Guess what? So you and I will go, I know what that is, right? The world is going to think you're nuts for thinking he's evil. Because he's going to solve all the world problems right? He's going to do miracles. He's going to rise from the dead. What's wrong with you Christians? What's wrong with us is what's right with us, right? We know the word. God told us ahead of time. Aren't you glad that Christianity, listen, this astounded me when I came to Christ, by the way. I always thought Christianity was like any other religion. You sort of close your eyes and take a step and hope there's ground there. It's a leap of faith into the dark. Wrong. Christianity, listen, is historic. It's evidential. The Bible has so much evidence for how true it is. One of the ways is prophecy. Another one is the manuscript evidence is so good for the Bible. It hasn't been changed. Another one is archaeology. Do you know this? No archaeological discovery has ever disproved anything in the Bible, but archaeological discoveries, guys digging Indiana Jones, you know, have confirmed all kinds of things in the Bible that people scoffed at for years. You ever heard of Pontius Pilate? People thought for millennia, fictional character, no record in any Roman historian's writings, no such guy existed. 1960s, they're digging in the Holy Land. They find a pillar from a building, some kind of government building, and it says Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea. Hello, the Bible, what do you know? Listen, if all that stuff is true, don't you know that the predictions about the end of the world, about Christ's return, about heaven, God doesn't get 98.4 right? He's 100% right. Okay, Um, Daniel's appalled by the vision beyond understanding because of the suffering he sees that's going to happen you know there's a little part of each one of us that kind of holds out a little hope for human government if we could get the right candidate the right democrat the right republican the right green party whatever your affiliation is go ahead we could make some good changes in this country not really okay the bible in a way earthly wise um, is that a word, is kind of pessimistic. Do you see that? You know what this is saying? You think it's bad now? It's going to get worse at the end, right? Where there are people that think, oh no, the Christian church is going to take over the world. We're going to evangelize the world. And we should, don't get me wrong. We're going to take over. It's all going to be great. So Jesus is going to show up and go, oh, I don't have to do anything. You guys did a great job. Wrong. Not biblically. I wish that's what it said. It's going to get better and better. Not biblically. Okay. How many are asleep now? Um, Let's move on. We're going to get into chapter nine, but I got to tell you about chapter nine uh, first. Um, Now I'm way behind on my notes here. Talk amongst yourselves. Chapter nine 
is a third vision that Daniel receives. Okay, I want to tell you that this is the high point of the book of Daniel, chapter 9. No, we won't finish tonight because the guy teaching tends to talk a little too much. But it's the high point of Daniel. Daniel 9 contains a four-verse prophecy. Okay, don't read ahead. I see you reading ahead. A four-verse prophecy that to me is, and a lot of other scholars, is the most amazing prophecy in the whole Bible. Okay? Daniel 9 contains a prophecy that tells the Jews about a historic thing that will happen in the future, okay, before the time of Christ, and then tells them, believe it or not, that there will be 173,880 days, and then Messiah will show up to the day. I'll show you that when we get there next week, God willing. Um, let's see. Um, this book, this chapter has been called the backbone of prophecy. If you don't understand chapter nine, you'll never get Jesus talking about the end times, all of that discourse. You'll never understand Antichrist. You'll never understand the second coming, the rapture, all that stuff. Seven year tribulation. It's all, um, in there. Uh, yeah. Okay. So we already talked about that. Okay, verse 1, chapter 9. Now, you're hoping, like, let's dive into the prophecy. I got news for you. We're not going to get there this week because there's a principle here. Before God will show Daniel the prophecy, okay, Daniel is going to do some serious praying, some serious confession about sin. Some serious, and he's not going to say what you and I would be tempted to say, those people of mine, they are so, sin not me, but those people, he's going to say we, okay? He is so grieved by his people's sin, he is pouring his heart out to God in the first 20 or so verses, and then while he's still speaking, God dispatches an angel to show him Show him the future in detail. That's what's going to happen. Verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent. Again, this is another flashback to when Darius or Darius, I think it was chapter 6 of Daniel, um, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. So Darius was the first of the rulers. Which it's a title, by the way, not a name. Um, Darius was the first of the rulers of the Medo-Persian empire that took over from Babylon. In the first year of his reign, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, he can't believe, of all people, it would be him, understood from the scriptures, what scriptures? The Old Testament, okay? Somehow Daniel gets his hand on a copy of Jeremiah. I understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Okay? I won't go into the whole thing here, but what there is is 490 years in Israel's history where they, Israel, went off the deep end, stopped really worshiping and stopped obeying God. They were going through the motions. We've already covered that. One of the things God tells them to do, 
And you may think, you'll hear this and you'll go, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal to me. God tells them, you guys have a farm, so do you. You have a ranch. God says, you know how you work for six days and the seventh day, you take a Sabbath, you rest, right? Old Testament. You know how I, God, created the world in six days and on the seventh day I rested. He says, I want you to do the same thing with years with your land. Farm your land for six years, seventh year, leave it alone. Let the land rest. It turns out farming wise, this is actually really good for farming, but it takes faith, doesn't it? Wait, I'm not going to grow any crops for a whole year. Are you sure you're going to provide for me? And I've stored up some stuff, but they didn't do it for 490 years. How many Sabbaths is that? 70, right? So God says as a punishment, I'm not kidding when I say these things. I don't mean me. I mean God saying this. To punish you for that, those 70 years of Sabbath, which were supposed to be mine, that's why you're going to be in captivity for 70 years. Daniel, remember that not everybody had a copy of the scriptures 2,500 years ago, right? Somehow he gets his hands on a copy of Jeremiah and looks it up and goes, Oh, this is incredible news. 70 years. Because he knows they've been in captivity about 70 years. It's just about over. He's thrilled by this. Um, I understood from the scriptures, according to the word given to Jeremiah the prophet. Notice it's the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet. It's not Jeremiah's opinion. All scriptures inspired God breathed into each person that writes. According to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Their captivity and also the desolation of Jerusalem, which has been thrown down by the Babylonians. They took it over. It's only supposed to last 70 years. It doesn't look like it's going to end, but God's word says it's going to end, and Daniel believes it. Verse 3, so I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, and in sackcloth and ashes. Okay, that introduces the rest of this chapter. Um, so first of all, he turns to the Lord. He doesn't try to take matters into his own hands. He turns to God. How many know that when you have a crisis, the last resort is not prayer. The first resort, right, is prayer. That's what he does. He turns to the Lord and notice he pleads with God. He doesn't demand, you said 70 years, we deserve it. He knows he's pleading. He's asking God in prayer and petition. Is that two different things? In a sense, petition, asking for specific things is part of prayer, which is a broader thing, which is nothing more than communication with the living God. Remember, I gave you the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S. Anybody remember that? Okay. Those are four elements that ought to be in prayer. Adoration or praise for God, right? I understand who you are and how great you are and how not great I am. Adoration, praise. C, confession, part of your prayer. It doesn't mean specific sins Thursday at 7.44 p.m., but you confess that you're a sinner. If you can remember specific things, I shouldn't have said that. It hurt her feelings. I'm really sorry. It was prideful of me. 
confess your sins to God. Adoration, C, confession, T, thanksgiving. Really important. We pray for stuff. He gives it to us and we just go on. Thank him for things. All kinds of things, right? I tell people that are depressed, day one, write down 10 things you're thankful for. Day two, 25 things. And don't use the list of 10. 25 other things. Day three, 50 things you're thankful for. Day four, 100. If you can't think of 100 things you're thankful for, you need to think again, right? Can you nod your head? There's one. Can you see me? Well, it's not that great to look at, but there's another one. You have sight. Can you hear what I'm saying? There's three. You see where I'm going here? Yes, somebody went, what? Okay, almost out of time. Thanksgiving, the S is supplication, A-C-T-S. It means asking God for stuff. It's best if you start with other people and then go to yourself, right? Anyway, you're going to see those elements in this prayer. Go back to verse three and we'll quit. Pleaded to them in prayer and petition. That's supplication. In fasting, in the Bible, fasting is abstaining from food, sometimes abstaining from water as well, for a specific period of time, not to show off how holy I am, but to say to God, you are my sustenance, you are what sustains me, and only you, I need only you, I'm not going to eat so I can concentrate on prayer. And every time I'm hungry and feel need, I'm going to rely on you even more. Okay, fasting. And in sackcloth and ashes, this is what the Jews would do as a sign of extreme mourning and disgust. And he is disgusted and mourning over the sin of his people, Israel. Okay. Literally, they would smear ashes all over themselves as a way of saying, I'm, I'm burned up with, uh, you know, I'm nothing but ashes kind of thing. We're going to quit there. Um, I'm going to stop the recording in a second and say, I hope you'll come back next week because Daniel 9 is just awesome. Okay. Bring your calculator. We're going to do some math. No, not really, but it's going to be a little tricky, but we'll get through it. Uh, by the way, Jeremiah 25, 11 uh, through 13 and Jeremiah 29 is where he's reading. Okay. We can read it now. It says 70 years. Um, let's see. I'm going to close with prayer and then we'll get out of here. Uh, if you don't get the notes, that I send in about an hour from now, and you want them, just email me and tell me. In that email will be the link to watch this video or share it with somebody uh, after the fact for one week. And in that email, I'll tell you where you go on this church's website, Oakhurst Evangelical Free, for the audio of tonight, which will be there tomorrow, and all the other ones before it, starting in chapter three. If you're here in the church and you want to leave a donation for this church because they turn on the lights and run the air conditioning or the heating or whatever, pay for the Wi-Fi and the Zoom, that'd be great. Or you can go to the website and donate there or mail one in. Okay. Doesn't go to me, the money, by the way. Let's close with prayer and we'll get out of here. Thanks for being here. Father in, in heaven, I can't believe that we can talk with you. What an awesome privilege and that you control and own and created the universe all for your son, Jesus Christ. We look forward to that day when he reigns God. But we as a nation are like Daniel. We see that our nation has sinned greatly and we're appalled by what we see going on. And so we apologize for that. Christians, we ourselves have sinned against you, God, and we need to be more obedient and more in tune and in touch with you on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, Lord. We need you more than we know, God. 
So cleanse us so that you can use us in this dark world and in these times, Father. And we're just blown away, God, at your absolute total accuracy in predicting the future. If you can do that, then what do we have to be worried about, Father? You are truly in control and all things work together for good to them who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Uh, Romans 8, 28 is still true. Thank you, Father, for these truths. May we be faithful to you, even as we may see them unfold in our lifetime someday. In the meantime, use us for your glory, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you all for being here. Thank you on Zoom for being here. I'm going to turn my mic and um, video off now and say goodnight. God bless you all.